Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody. Tuning in at home. How many people here for the first time tonight? Welcome to all of you, a bunch of new new faces and uh, some old faces, some folks I haven't seen in a while. Welcome back. And um, this is the regular Monday night class of Against the Stream that's been happening here on the west side of Los Angeles for, I don't know, over 16 years on Monday nights since I moved to LA. We're in the middle of a series on uh, this Monday night class where starting in the new year, I I started with the story of the Buddha and the history of Siddhartha and what a little bit of background of what was his life like and motivation and um, process of seeking awakening and what he went through and what he came to, what he realized and what we now call Buddhism, rather than it just being this sort of world religion or philosophy, that there's actually a backstory of like, this was the guy and what he did and what he experienced and what he taught. And so now we're in the teaching section where for the last few weeks, we've been going through the first formulation of his his, uh, expression, his teaching of Uh, how he came to awakening and how we can, you know, that's kind of the core message of Buddhism, which is um, I did it (laughs) and you can do it too. And um, here's how I did it. And here's how you can do it. If you're interested, uh, how you can experience directly the four noble truths and use the eightfold path to, uh, to experience the third truth, uh, liberation, awakening, that's possible. You can do it. We can, anybody can do it. The, The, core message is uh, anybody can do it, but uh, very few people are willing to do what needs to be done. I like that phrase, like kind of do what needs to be done uh, to practice mindfulness, to practice renunciation, to develop compassion and uh, a level of wisdom that allows us to be in the midst of our realities pleasant or unpleasant or whatever's happening and not suffer about it. And this is the core reminder to all of us that the the ideal, the goal, the potential that Buddhism offers is an experience of not suffering about what's happening right now, no matter what it is. And there's extreme examples in Buddhism of like, even if you're attacked and beaten, don't suffer about it. Even if you're Chris Rock and you get slapped in the face, don't suffer about it. And certainly don't suffer about what other people are doing and experiencing, but have compassion, have compassion for your own pain, have compassion for other people's confusion and ignorance, and that you can come to a place of 
being at ease and responding with love and kindness and compassion and wisdom rather than anger and judgment and you know critical aversive which is our norm it's pretty normal to be critical and confused so we're tonight on the uh, fourth aspect of the Eightfold Path, which is how do we behave? If you want to get free, right? So there's, you can put it as it's the kind of, here's a proposal, the Four Noble Truths and the uh, Eightfold Path as an invitation and a proposal. And the invitation is freedom is possible. And then the proposal is if you're willing to um, meditate, six seven and eight are meditation practice and so a lot of it that's why we're here here to meditate but this fourth uh you know three four and five last week we spent the evening discussing communication what's traditionally called right speech or wise communication and tonight's about behavior about action and that all of our intentional, volitional activities are producing karma for us. And that if we want to get free, there's um, probably some changes that we're going to have to make. You, you probably don't come to Buddhism already behaving impeccably, <laughs> already rigorously honest and, uh, you know, fully... Uh, skillful and careful and sober and may maybe, but probably not. And so tonight we'll talk about the five uh, precepts, the fourth factor, which is the five precepts. When you're new to Buddhism, you're like, this is fucking confusing. Why is there so much math to Buddhism? There's four of these and five of those. And But once you've been hanging around for a while, uh, it actually, I, my experience is it helps us make sense of it and track it of kind of like, okay, there's this list of the four truths. And then there's this list of the eightfold path. And once you've heard it a few times, you start to remember it like, okay, there's this, these eight aspects. And then for the fourth one, there's five aspects of the fourth factor, which are the five precepts. And we'll talk about the five precepts tonight. I've been doing this series this year for 2021 or 22. Where are we? 22. Lost 21 in a pandemic somehow. But in 22, I'm doing a series of four day longs where I've invited the community and some of you are part of it to um, take the five precepts for the year and to really commit to living by them. And then every quarterly, uh, we met in January, we're meeting again in April. Um, in October or November or something like that. So four times this year to really reestablish our and to come together as a community. So I'm really trying my best to live by these five precepts and, and a process that we're doing in our community that they do in the monasteries of humility of coming together and acknowledging, well, here's where I'm struggling with the precepts. 
around honesty or around uh, relationship to sexual activity, behavior, uh, or around um, intoxicants. One of the teachings of the Buddha is if you want to take this path, you need to be sober. It's a sober path. It's a, an abstinence-based process of awakening. And um, for so many of our community, I, probably the majority of the people in, in the room here and probably at home too, were um, recovering drug addicts. So this is a supportive teaching, the fifth precept that says, um, be sober, be free from recreational drug and alcohol use. But for uh, people that aren't drug addicts in recovery, it's a really challenging proposal. Like, oh, you like Buddhism? You have to be sober to practice Buddhism. Now, have to be, maybe is a little bit strong. If you want to practice Buddhism the way the Buddha taught it, he taught abstinence from all recreational, you know, it's a... Um, a teetotaler tradition. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sober tradition. Um, so thinking for a moment, I'm gonna go you know, more in detail about these teachings after we meditate, but thinking for a moment of the five precepts, which is the encouragement, the, uh, you know, the encouragement to abstain from stealing, to abstain from lying, to abstain from sexual misconduct. And we'll talk more about that, but if you think you're in misconduct, you probably are. We'll talk more about the specifics, any sort of dishonesty around your sexuality or intentional harm cause, causing. Um, so lying, stealing, sexual misconduct, um, any use of drugs and alcohol, and uh, that's only four. Killing, killing. No, oh, we're not allowed to murder either. For number one, killing. <laughs> no, no murdering, lying, stealing, uh, sexual misconduct, or use of drugs and alcohol, recreational use of drugs and alcohol. Of those five, suggested, encouraged precepts. What's most challenging for you? Is it harder not to lie? Or harder not to steal? Or harder to avoid sexual misconduct? Or harder to avoid drugs and alcohol? Or harder to not kill, not intentionally murder? We'll talk about these precepts after the meditation. Which one is most challenging for you? And think about it for a moment. Reflect on the five. Killing, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct, sobriety. And then um, in order to build community, find... Uh, just let's see if we can do dyads. Sometimes I, we do big groups. Actually, the groups at home, I don't think I can put you in dyads. I think the most that lets me put you in is three. But find somebody in the room, maybe somebody that you don't know, and introduce yourself. And this is to build community. A core part of um, the Buddha's teaching is to associate with other people who are trying to wake up. You know, there's this. If you want to wake up, 
it's going to be necessary to have other people in your life that also want to wake up. Because if you're only surrounded by people who don't give a shit and are taking refuge in the material world rather than a spiritual uh, refuge, uh, an internal process, it's going to be so hard to do it if you don't have support, if you don't have that mirroring, if you don't have people in your life that are also trying to wake up. So that's one of the reasons why I have you introduce yourselves to each other. So you start to meet each other and connect and hopefully over the months and years, build some sustainable connections with other people in the, in the Sangha, in the community. So find someone and then talk about the precepts and what's, what's most challenging for you, killing, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct or uh, sobriety. So go ahead, and at home, I'm opening the rooms, and I encourage you to join one of them. So finding a way to sit that's appropriate for meditation, upright, relaxed. Posture is not the most important part of meditation, but it's very helpful to find a way to sit that Feel sustainable, upright, relaxed, allowing your eyes to be closed and finding, making any adjustments necessary, letting the energy of communication settle as you turn your attention inward. Establishing mindfulness, present time, non judgmental, kind awareness of your own body. What are you feeling physically right now? Feeling the contact with the chair, or the cushion. And as you feel into the physical sensations in the face and the shoulders and the belly, see if you can release tension, soften, relax into the upright posture. Becoming aware of the sense doors, sounds, smell, taste, sight. Aware of the mind, thoughts and emotions. Aware of the body, all of the sensations from head to toe. And then placing our attention on the sensations in the body that the breath creates as your body breathes. Its own natural rhythm, no need to control the breath, just attune to the sensations of the breath. 
Bring your awareness to what it feels like to be breathing in and out, what sensations are at the nostrils, the chest, the belly. And allowing everything else to recede, the thoughts and other sense doors to be in the background. Let the breath be the foreground of your awareness for the first few minutes, establishing and maintaining mindfulness of the breath. Of course, the attention doesn't just stay put, it's drawn back into thinking, a sound leads to a memory or a plan. Seeing that you can direct your awareness, you can choose to return to the breath, not stopping the thoughts, But we're trying to stop being involved in the thoughts. Let them be in the background. Keep returning to the body sitting and breathing. The mind might want to plan or remember or fantasize. Just keep coming back to the breath.
you become involved in thinking, just acknowledge it. My awareness has returned to thinking. I'm involved in this planning or without judging it, without yanking the attention away from the thought, just explore it a little bit. Thinking is like this. Gently choosing to disengage from the thought. Seeing that the mind continues to plan and remember hope and fear and worry all by itself without your participation. Just what the mind does. And choose to remain with the breath. If you're new to practice, it's the initial foundational training, mindfulness of the breath. The Buddha's instructions encourage us to become more inclusive, expanding our awareness to our whole being, the whole body. Include the sense doors, include the emotions and thoughts, the mind produces
You can investigate, get curious about your experience. What's my mind doing? What emotions are arising right now? What sensations? What's my body feeling? Including the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the images. First question is what's happening right now and bringing our attention to it. And the second aspect is the feeling tone. Is it pleasant? Or is it unpleasant? Or is the experience that awareness is with, whether it's a thought or a sensation or a sound, is it neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? So we're investigating our perception of the present time experience.
Mindfulness helps us identify what's happening, present, what the mind is doing, the body's experiencing, the heart feeling. And how it feels, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral tone of our experience, which leads to learning to let go of the resistance to the unpleasant, our aversion, our anger or fear around pain, learning to just be with it, to care about it. As the impermanent nature of all of our experience is revealed, mindfulness shows us that whatever's happening is changing. The heart, the mind, the body, constantly changing. The sounds, the smells, the sights, constantly changing. If it's pleasant, the appropriate, the wise relationship to it is non-attached appreciation. Enjoy the pleasant moments without clinging. Let go as much as you can right now. Tolerate the unpleasant with as much mercy, as much acceptance and compassion as you can in this moment.
So these three center spokes of the eight-spoked wheel, the eight-fold path, uh, communication and action and livelihood. Last week we did the speech communication. This week, action, engagement, behavior. Next week, livelihood. Um, are what make up um, Buddhist ethics and the, the teachings on um, how to live, how to live with integrity, how to live uh, in a way that doesn't create negative karma for us. The whole understanding, the Buddha's first, first factor of the path, understand the truth of karma that we are completely responsible for our actions. Personally, we own our volitional actions. And then if you want to get free, you got to be careful with how you behave. you got to be wise with how you behave, with how you communicate. And next week we'll talk about how you earn money and how you deal with money and relate to money. Um, in this... Uh, I, I love that, you know, the Buddha is really practical in, um, and, and, um, and thorough of like looking at our human life and the ways that we suffering. He says, okay, we suffer about sex. We suffer about money. We suffer about, uh, you know, relationships, how people speak to us, how we speak communication, so much unnecessary suffering and harm and um, difficulty when we're not careful with our behaviors, our actions. Now, in the context of the Buddha's life and uh, this image that some of you have been following along with, a lot of you come every week and you're following along with the story and, you know, the Buddha gaining enlightenment under the Bodhi tree and then going to Saranath to find his five ascetic friends and, and then, you know, the, the scene, the set of the original turning of the wheel, the original teaching of the Four Noble Truths is he's sitting there with his five homies and he's saying like, this is what happened and what I did and how we can get there. Now, it's unlikely, I think, it's unlikely that he... Um, said all of this stuff about livelihood and about sexuality and stuff to these like celibate uh, ascetics that were his friends, these, these forest dwellers that he was. Some of this stuff probably came later because it just doesn't make sense that he's talking to basically these monks that he's been living with in the forest for the last five years. And he's saying, and now also we need to avoid sexual misconduct because they're already completely celibate. So he's not really addressing it in that way. Or also right livelihood. When we're working, it's like, we, we don't have jobs, dude. Like, <laughs> so some of these practical teachings come later. They're probably not in that first when he's sitting there in the deer park, say, you know, my sense, you know, and all of this is like, we don't fucking know because it was 2,600 years ago and it's recorded and, 
you know, there's some of its archetypal, some of its myth, some of its religious exaggeration, some of its really practical humanist psychology of how we train our minds and how we, some of it just makes perfect sense. All of it to me makes perfect sense. But then some of the um, stuff where he's addressing basically lay people like us, some of this stuff is so practical for us. Because to the monks, they develop hundreds of renunciation practices. I think, um, you know, as, as he goes on and he establishes the Sangha and these five guys become monks and then more monks and more monks and then nuns come in and monks and nuns and there's thousands of, you know, monastics. And it, by the end, by the, you know, by the end of his life or, you know, uh, as Buddhism develops, the monks have 227 forms of renunciation precepts. Could you imagine having 227 kind of rules and practices that you needed to be aware of at all times? The nuns had even more, 300 and, does anybody know? Three, three something. Something like that, which is fucked up, right? Given the ladies more rules. <laughs> Supposedly, all of the precepts, um, other than these kind of five basic ones, came out of experiences, so that you know uh, something would happen, and um, he would be like, "No, no, let's let's not do that," and it would become a precept. <laughs> um, But when he's sitting there with these guys, and in some of the early translations, it says that he really just focused on um, the importance of nonviolence, of not killing, the karma of, of violence and of murder, the uh, importance of honesty, of not taking anything that's not freely offered. And... Um, And, and he, that he did talk to them about um, sensuality and relationship to sexuality. And one of the ways that Buddhism is, is talked about and that the Buddha's teaching is talked about is the middle path. Now, these guys had been practicing asceticism, which um, he said, we were, we're too extreme. We, we've, been, we've gone too far into renunciation. We've gone so, we've gotten too extreme into the complete rejection of all intentional pleasure. And we're coming back to this middle path where actually some intentional pleasure is okay. As long as you're doing it in a wise way that's not causing harm and is not, um, you know, creating negative karma for you. rather than avoiding everything pleasant because, and it makes sense because you see, we all get it. Where do you suffer? I get, so, I suffer about clinging to pleasure, craving for pleasure. And so then sometimes it's that overcorrection of like, oh, well, my attachments to pleasant experiences cause me suffering. So I'll just try to avoid all pleasant experiences. I'll just renounce everything that feels good. 
<laughs> which is what they'd been doing for years. And he says, no, like, well, there's actually a balance. It's okay to, you remember in the story where he started eating food and they rejected him. They're like, you're eating food. You sell out. Like we fast. And, and you're, and he was talking to uh, a young woman that was giving him food. And he was like, you know, we don't talk to women and eat food. We are spiritual. Spiritual people don't do that. And he's like, no, there's this balance actually of finding a way to be in the midst of pleasure, including sexuality, including sense pleasures with non-attachment, with an appropriate, healthy uh, way of showing up for it. And I really like that, that sex is part of the um, teaching because here on the five precepts, he was mostly just saying, you know, abstain from misconduct, but at least it's in the teaching. Bring awareness, bring mindfulness to your sexuality, to how you show up in relationships, because there's so much suffering. It's said, I don't even know where this is in the suttas. And sometimes when I say this, people ask me, where is that in the suttas? But it's said that the Buddha said um, that if there was another force, another energy that we experience as humans, as powerful as lust, as powerful as craving, and craving and lust for sensual, for sexual, doesn't mean just intercourse, all of it, for intimacy, for sensuality, for, you know, the companionship of an intimate relationship, the whole thing. It's said that if there was another power in the human experience as strong as our sensual, sexual drive, that enlightenment would be impossible. So reflecting on that for a moment. I'm starting with this third precept around sexual misconduct, but he's bringing in um, that actually it's possible to have a healthy sexual relationship and to, to show up in, in, in a way that doesn't create karma for us, doesn't create suffering for us or cause harm to others. It's possible rather than total celibacy, he chooses, chooses a, a life of celibacy and the monks and nuns choose a life of celibacy. But here in the five precepts for us householders, he's saying, you can, have, you can be engaged in, in sexuality, but it's such a powerful drive, you're gonna have to bring a lot of awareness to it. It's gonna become a central uh, investigation. You can't just, Say like, oh yeah, I'm a meditator and then go unconscious into your relationships to bring that awareness. And the minimum renunciation is not cheating. Avoiding sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct in the sutta uh, says, is so simple. Having no intercourse with people who are uh, still under the protection of their parents or who are married. It also says here, are convicts. 
which most of you are felons, so you're not allowed to. It says with with convicts. I'm not sure. I think it's something around like. Um, no, I think it's maybe referring more to like people who are um, in like sex slavery kind of yeah. thing, like have been convicted of something and then are being sex trafficked, maybe. I think I, I don't like something like that. Yeah. Um, or with anybody who's betrothed. So in a, you know, in a commitment, betrothed means like um, committed to be married, but we can expand that to uh, anybody who's in a commitment to not cheating. Basically, it's really a low level of renunciation. Don't cheat. Show up in an honest way. So the minimum level of renunciation, but I love that it's in here because it's so important. It's so central to our human experience to bring mindfulness to craving, second noble truth. What do you crave for? What do you desire? What do you, what does your mind tell you will make you happy? How often has your mind said the relationship that'll make me happy? Sex will make me happy. A sexual relationship will make me happy. How many times in your life has your mind told you that? Hundreds? Thousands? And, and this sort of delusion. And it'll make me happy forever. If I could just be with them, I'll be happy forever. Forgetting impermanence, forgetting the transient nature of sexuality, of sensuality, forgetting that relationships are, you know, amazing when they're healthy and they're even when they're healthy, challenging, still suffering, <laughs> even in the healthiest relationships, still some suffering. And we forget that. Anyways, I'm going off on sort of sex and relationships. Come back to the precepts. The precepts are, if you want to get free, and you understand karma, don't kill. Now, maybe we should make a um, separation between killing and murder. What's the difference between killing and murder? There's not any really, but let's pretend like there is. Because all of this is about intent. So let's all admit that unintentionally, you're going to kill that your very existence is going to kill other living beings. You, you know that, right? Um, driving home tonight or walking home tonight, you might kill some living beings by stepping on some ants. Because all we're talking about not just each, not just humans, but all living beings. Uh, driving home, you might kill some, it rained, there's earthworms out. If you're not mindful of every single step you take, you might kill an earthworm. So I think it's important to look at this precept is uh, unintentionally I'm going to kill, but I'm not going to intentionally murder. I like murder sounds a little bit more like it's intentional. If I see an earthworm, I'm not going to go stomp on it and murder it out. <laughs> unintentionally, I might. I might not be mindful enough to, of my footsteps and I might, or I might be driving my truck home tonight and 
kill a whole bunch of insects that fly fly into the windshield or um if i'm not mindful i might smack a mosquito just kind of instinctually um just eating food i mean there's a big this first precept some buddhists become vegetarian buddhism is not a vegetarian faith but because this uh, encouragement to not kill is there some take that and say like i don't want to uh, participate in murder uh, in my diet and um and some sects of buddhism become vegetarian plant-based vegan and so you have to decide uh, what your relationship to killing is, knowing that unintentionally you'll kill, and that even a plant-based diet, you're still killing insects, you're still killing worms, just you know, cultivating vegetables still kills living beings, not the big ones, but still kills the little ones, and that that's just this plane of existence that we're on. It's impossible to not kill. And from a Buddhist perspective, all living beings have the same survival instinct that you have. Now we have these big human brains that are very conscious of like, please don't hurt me. Right? You feel that you have that core feeling? Please don't kill me. <laughs> it's not like we're consciously walking around going, please don't kill me. But that is our survival instinct, which is, please don't murder me. And that we share that with all beings that have a nervous system, all beings that have a, a nervous sentient beings. Um, have a, a conscious or unconscious feeling of please don't murder me, including the little insects. They also don't want to get murdered, including the earthworms. They also don't want to get murdered. Maybe they don't think about it the way we do. We're so self-centered. We're like walking around like, please, I hope nobody murders me today. <laughs> so out of compassion and out of wisdom the first precept abstaining from killing the second precept abstaining and we went so far into this last week abstaining from lying and all of the different forms of lying omission exaggeration minimization you know total fallacy creating narratives that aren't true um, and the karma of lying that we experience directly, abstaining from that, a minimal renunciation, tell the truth, show up and, and deal with the uncomfortable consequences of being honest rather than avoiding being honest to make ourselves more comfortable or to try to caretake someone else by not being honest with them. Avoiding taking that which is not offered, stealing and looking at the different levels of that how how are you with honesty how our craving our greed our self-centeredness sometimes manifests in like i'm going to take whatever i can whether it's earned or not earned and um the thrill of stealing did you did you get in you ever get into stealing it's fucking fun <laughs> Stealing's a blast. 
I'm not supposed to say that, but it's true, right? Like it's so fucking like that feeling of like, I just got, I got away with it. Fucking shoplifting, man. This is awesome. Or whatever, burglar, you know, like you ever break into anybody's house? I have. <laughs> fucking terrifying and exciting. <laughs> Stealing bicycles. And the karma of stealing, which is um, knowing that like, oh, I, now, I, now I own that negative behavior. It was fun at the time, maybe, but now I have that momentum in my life of taking what wasn't mine and uh, fuel, fueling that greed and fueling that fear of getting caught of um i know that karma doesn't really work this way but because i as a young person was quite a thief from an early age um for all the different reasons i've also uh, had quite a bit of stuff stolen from me and um as i came to practice under uh, buddhism and understand Karma, it doesn't totally work like this, but um, like when I was in school in San Francisco in grad school, um, I had used some of my student loans to buy a fancy bicycle. And uh, then one day I came out of class and I had had it locked up, but it was gone. You know, you, people can break those bike locks. And, and, um, and my first experience of that was like, oh man, like anger and but then really quickly reminded myself of karma and of like, oh, I used to steal bicycles and now my bicycle got stolen. And maybe that's the karmic purification of my own past actions rather than feeling so uh, offended by it. And, and like, it was such an injustice. Maybe this is harder for those of you who've never stolen, but have been stolen from. I had another bicycle stolen just recently. Venice, shit, you know, even locked up, shit just <laughs> is liberated. <laughs> right out of the yard. A commitment to not taking that which is not yours, not freely offered, not earned. The monks take this to an extreme um, where they're not allowed to eat any food that isn't actually handed to them, not offered in some way by a lay person. Imagine that, like you could never eat anything that somebody didn't basically hand to you. You couldn't go order it. Well, also they don't have any money, right? They've renounced money, so they can't go buy it. Somebody else has to buy it for them. Somebody has to hand it to them. You can't even say, help yourself. It's right there, help yourself. They just be like, fuck, looks. <laughs> if I reach out and grab it, I'll be breaking my precepts. 
even though it was verbally offered, it has to be physically offered. The cheat for them is that if they, you put the food on the table, all you have to do is touch the table and then say, uh, this is all offered and then they can eat it. But, but there's a, a whole ritual and process of bringing mindfulness to that interaction and to what am I receiving? The third precept, avoid sexual misconduct. Maybe I'll talk about the fifth precept and then have some dialogue. Um, the Buddha's teaching was if you're, you know, we're trying to be mindful here. And if you want to be mindful, this mindfulness-based solution to uh, seeing clearly the impermanent nature of all of our experience, you got to be sober to really see it, um, to respond wisely. You got to be sober to respond in a volitional way. That when you're high, when you're buzzed, when you're intoxicated, you lose the uh, ability to fully choose how you're responding. You lose mindfulness, that intoxicants uh, block mindfulness. And so this fifth precept that says, if you're serious about this path, you'll be sober. I believe that, and um, I also know a whole bunch of people that are really serious about Buddhism and aren't sober, and, um, you know, it's this really weird dilemma for me where I've had, like, most of the Western teachers, the insight teachers, um, I'd say, like, probably only, like, maybe 20% of them actually practice the fifth precept, like, 70 or 80% of the kind of famous American layperson Dharma teachers probably have a glass of wine or smoke some weed or eat some acid or um, because they came from that hippie generation. And they, for whatever reason, they decided to ignore the fifth precept when it came to Buddhism and to sort of reinterpret it. And um, some of the Northern schools of Buddhism, Mahayana, uh, reinterpreted the fifth precept from abstinence to uh, moderation, and to uh, it's in this kind of attitude that even some of Cornfield and some of my teachers had, which is like it's okay to catch a buzz, just don't you know become an alcoholic. It's not okay to be an addict, but it's okay to be a um, you know to indulge some. And I've always, my pushback for them is like, how the fuck does this make sense in the five precepts where you think that the Buddha actually said moderation? How about if we apply moderation to the other precepts too? It's okay to murder in moderation. It's okay to lie in moderation. It's okay to steal and sexual misconduct. It's just once in a while. It's okay, but not, not all the time. Clearly, the Buddha's teaching was sobriety and um, complete abstinence. 
And as I said in the beginning, this is such a support for those of us who need to be abstinent because we are addicts, alcoholics, and this really supports our recovery. But it's a bigger dilemma for the person who's not an addict, who gets interested in Buddhism, meditation helps, mindfulness helps, and then kind of, oh, also I need to give up my pleasure-inducing substances? Of course, you don't have to. All of the precepts are in a encouragement. They're the, the Buddha's teachings on how to get free. And how, how much we take that on, it's up to you. You get to find your own way with, with these precepts. You might be, um, I don't know if he's tuned in tonight, but somebody um, has been communicating with me recently that calls himself the Buddhist butcher. And his profession is a butcher, uh, actual, you know, and he's making Buddhist bacon. And, you know, with that sort of sense of humor about like, I know this is against the precepts, but it's what I do. And um, you say, you might be a Buddhist butcher. You know, you might be somebody who says, you know, I, for the other four precepts, I'm all in. <laughs> but when it comes to murdering, I'm really into murdering. I like to murder. It tastes so good. Or you know, like I was joking about stealing. You might be somebody who says like, I really want to be mindful, but also I'm a thief and I believe in it and I practice it. And it's my own anti-establishment, you know, terrorism. <laughs> Steal from Walmart. <laughs> Fuck the man. What do you think about your behaviors? Are you bringing mindfulness to lying and stealing, sexuality, intoxication, violence, murder? Is this something that is a central part of your awareness? This is the teaching. This is the encouragement. The five precepts. Most Buddhists Every day, remember, you know, remind themselves to, you know, I'm committed to not killing, not lying, not stealing, avoiding sexual misconduct, avoiding any sort of recreational drug and alcohol use. Every day, reminding themselves so that it becomes a central uh, awareness that we are in, in engaging in throughout the day. Because sometimes, if you only, you know, think about it every once in a while when you hear a Dharma talk. All of a sudden you're like, oh shit, yeah, I haven't been being that honest or I haven't been um, being that careful with my sexuality or whatever it is. So how is it for you? How central is this? And, um, and what are your questions about this? A, a kind of maybe the frame is like, are you in? Can you live your life by the five precepts? Do you want to live your life by the five precepts? Do they make sense to you? Is there any um, questions about how to navigate existence without stealing, without lying, without murdering, without sexual misconduct, or without intoxicants? Pretty simple. 
baseline ethics. And then, of course, on top of that, um, instead of just not killing, how can we serve? Instead of just not stealing, how can we help? How can we be of service? Instead of um, just avoiding misconduct, how can we use sexuality as part of our mindfulness, as part of our awakening? Such an opportunity to see our relationship to craving and selfishness and self-centeredness and fear and all of that and using sex as a process of, of awakening rather than just something that we have to be careful with, but actually it's our practice. Our speech is our practice. Our actions are our practice. So any questions, comments, clarifications? I see a couple at home. I'll take one online and then I'll go to you. Jeffrey, go ahead. Thank you, Noah. Um, the five precepts are always labeled as the foundational ethics. And the part that I struggle with in regards to the fifth one and, and alcohol is I have trouble seeing how this is an ethical concern. Yeah. The first four are easy. Right. The fifth one, it seems like uh, if you're intoxicated, that's an ethical concern because it affects your behavior. But, right. but the, the verbiage is not about being intoxicated. It's about having an intoxicant. Yeah. And so it's like, well, shit, everything's an intoxicant, you know, like what, you know, a glass of wine, I'm not getting shit faced and belligerent. So yes. where is the line? You know, like what's your, what's your position there? I, I mean, I agree with you. Could you, can you hear him in the back? The comments online. Um, I agree with you that, yeah, like um, getting intoxicated isn't an ethical issue. It's um, the only ethical issue there is around um, are we more likely when having a buzz, whether it's being really intoxicated or minorly intoxicated, to be dishonest, to sleep with somebody we shouldn't be sleeping with? Many of us have done that right? You get drunk. Oops. <laughs> Slept with the wrong person last night when I was drunk, right? When I was intoxicated, you know? Um, so, or maybe, you know, maybe kill drunk driving, like, you know, uh, even if you just have a glass of wine or two and it stops your um, uh, reactions, you know, and you're driving and you actually unintentionally kill someone because you had a buzz and we're driving or, or whatever it was. So sobriety and service of ethics, but not as part of ethics is my, is my feeling. Um, more, you know, the, the fifth precept actually makes more sense around the importance of mindfulness than the importance of ethics. My sense is you cannot be mindful while intoxicated, even though while you're intoxicated, even just a little bit, a little weed or a little whatever edible, whatever you're doing, it can kind of feel like, wow, I'm way more mindful. This is amazing. I can see impermanence or whatever. But the truth is, it's, it's actually blocking our perception, not, not enhancing it, um, I think so. 
Good comment. It's not really about ethics when it comes to the fifth precept. It's, um, but it is in support of mindfulness and in support of ethics. Please. Yeah. Um, my question is about like, I'm going to just speak personal for a second. I definitely have some sexual misconduct in my, in my recent past, you know, and, and I was just thinking about like, okay, the karma involved in that. And and then I come from a recovery background, something about like the amends process and like what's the Buddhist perspective on like a making of amends for violating those precepts. There was another question um, here that I'll connect with this question. Uh, the question, if you could hear it at home, is about the um, Buddhist um, perspective on um, making amends when we have been unskillful and we want to take responsibility for it. Um, and the question was, um, as in other religions, there, there is some type of repentance uh, when we, um, is there some type of repentance when we don't uphold these precepts? Um, repentance or amends or, and the answer is no. In traditional Buddhism, you have your karma. You don't need to do anything about it because you own it. You need to purify your karma by not, you know, by changing your actions, changing your behaviors. The sort of living amends is the Buddhist perspective, but there's not a direct amends process in, in early Buddhism. Um, and there's no real repentance because, um, yeah, I mean, the repentance is stop doing that, <laughs> you know, because there's no, I feel that repentance feels like there's some sort of external judgment um, in Buddhism, there's no external judge. It's just your karma. You're responsible for it. And so you purify it from your changing your behaviors. Don't do that anymore. And then maybe you can, there, like if there's any sort of repentance or, or amends, is do the opposite, right? Like develop good karma, be generous, be loving, be forgiving, be um, of service, help. And that that will actually, you know, develop good karma to balance the negative karma. So you change your, your uh, pur you know, the whole process of purifying our karma. That having been said, I'm a huge fan of amends. And so like when I was creating refuge recovery, Buddhist-based recovery process, and I looked at Buddhism, and I looked at the 12 steps and what I'd experienced in the 12 steps, and I thought, well, what's missing in Buddhism um, that I felt, feel is really beneficial in the 12 steps. And the main thing was the ninth step was the process of making direct amends that um, didn't exist really in Buddhism. And so then I borrowed that from the 12 steps and put it as an integral part of, of the refuge recovery process. Because when we've caused harm, yes, we're responsible for it. Yes, we have owned that karma. And there's something healing about going and uh, for both parties, if an amends is done well, of going and taking responsibility and acknowledging the harm that we've caused and asking for forgiveness and trying to mend something that has been broken. Um, and sometimes you're successful at mending it and sometimes you're not. And that's okay, but just the intention of, of trying. So we borrow, I borrow that from from them. I see a bunch of questions, but I also see that it's nine o'clock. 
<laughs> I'm sorry that I didn't, um, that I went on too long and didn't leave enough time for the discussion. Um, if you want to stay after class and chat with me about any of these questions, I can hang out for a little bit, but let's not keep the Sangha hostage with our discussion. So we'll end there for tonight. Next week, uh, we'll talk about money and work and uh, livelihood. Um, and this is a good you know, setup for Against the Stream is offering this quarterly five precepts uh, day long where we come together and we do a formal commitment to the five precepts. We um, do a little uh, ritual around sharing with each other where we're struggling with the precepts and we recommit. And the next day long is just in a couple weeks, April 16th, uh, three weeks away. So we'll spend a whole day. We'll do some sitting meditation, maybe some walking meditation. We'll take the five precepts. We'll take the three refuges. You're all invited. You can register on the website. Um, there's a charge for it, a registration fee for it. If you can afford it, pay it, sign up. If you want to come and you can't afford it, know that you can have a scholarship and, and come and pay what you can. That's okay. So um, we did the first one in January. It was a great day. I hope a bunch of you join us. We do a little um, food together and uh, spend the day together practicing and reflecting on these ethical precepts and practices of Buddhism. The retreat in May is also open for registration. There was some scholarship money offered. Um, I don't know if they've all been taken or not, but um, if you're planning to come to the three-day Memorial Day weekend Joshua Tree retreat, which has been an annual retreat, I think I've probably done it for close to 15 years every Memorial Day, and I think this is the last one. Um, at this location. Anyways, I might find another location. We've been doing it at this Joshua Tree Retreat Center, but they doubled their prices and it's becoming uh, unaffordable, I think, and and just not a good deal. <laughs> Even if you can afford it, I just think that they're charging way more than the um, uh, facilities are, are kind of uh, worth. Um, so I'm going to try to find a new facility for, for that retreat. But this, this is the last time I'm planning to go to the Joshua Tree Center. Some of you have come for years and, um, you know, you might want to come and uh, enjoy this last retreat there. Um, that's on the web, website also for registration. Lastly, um, you know, this practice of teaching Buddhism, of offering, of um, is done free of charge. Uh, Against the Stream is a nonprofit organization that is supported by your generosity, uh, by people who tune in to Zoom, half of the community at home, half of the community in the room. And so it's donation-based. But think about, um, think about the donation as part of your practice rather than just a kind of mindless offering. Actually bring mindfulness to it and think about like, how important is this to me? What place in my life does it have? How can, you know, do I wanna support this? I also like to think about um, rather than fee for service, sort of getting out of the capitalist fee for service, know that like we're here tonight and we have a meditation center uh, because of the generosity of the people that came before us. 
the people that came, you know, like I said, I've been doing this class for 16 years. It's those people in the past that made it possible for us to be here today. And that your donations today are for the people in the future, rather than your giving for you. Think about like, it's actually, you're giving it so that the Dharma and these classes are here for others in the future, whether you keep coming or not, that this kind of pay it forward mentality, I think is a nice way to think about it. So please be generous with your donations. The um, link is in the chat here on Zoom. There's a bowl for cash. Tara's at the desk. Thank you for the help, Tara. Um, and she um, can swipe your card if you wanna make a card offering, or there's a, um, a code, barcode for um, uh, Venmo. Can you take fingerprints? No. What is that? Is that like Cash App? Yeah, we do fingerprints. We should do that. Set it up. Barcode. Yeah. You should be chipped. Yeah, you actually just we remove it from your wallet as you walk in. That's right. Thank you, everyone, for your thousand dollars donation. That's right. Believe that. Not only are we karmically responsible for our own happiness, but that uh, there's a merit in our actions, a merit in our gathering, a merit in the practicing of the Dharma that can be shared rather than us only thinking about our own karma of thinking about how can we help create a positive change on this planet. So it's a practice to live an ethical life, not only for ourselves, but for the benefit of all living beings. And we can take the merit of our practice and offer it outwards, sharing the merit, sharing the blessings, sharing the positive intentions. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.